0: Thank you, Daryl and Tina. Thank you, Vince, for praying. We're going to be in 1 Peter, chapter 4. We're going to cover verses 1 through 6 this morning. There's a famous quote uh, by a man named A.W. Tozer that goes like this. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If you talk to any person about who God is, you're likely to get different answers depending on where they're at in their life, how they grew up, what they believe about God, or what they don't believe about God in the the rabbit trails class that we've been doing, which is just a a fun class where we chase rabbit trails. Uh, We've talked about God in the, the Trinity and what that means and doesn't mean the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because at a foundational level, if we're Christians and we say we worship God, we have to know who God is. That's what Scripture is. It's God revealing himself to us. And so if you ask people, even Christians, who God is, you'll get a, a wide variety of answers. God is love, and God is grace, and peace, and God is holy. And all of those things are true. But oftentimes what we, we do is we we key in on the aspects of, of who God is uh, that are easy and comfortable for us. And unfortunately, we end up with these pictures of God as Like a grandfather sitting in the rocking chair who, back in his youth, was pretty powerful. But now, at this point in his age, he's just a gentle, kind old man who, if you go to him and if you talk to him just right, he might give you a piece of candy or maybe a couple dollars. He'll mail you a check on your birthday, and and that's about as much as we talk to him. What we're going to see this morning is the way Peter talks about God is a way that makes uh, us pretty uncomfortable. It's that God is judge, He's going to reveal, uh, right, and it's such, we'll, just, we'll, we'll get into, we're going to spend some time here thinking about how we're supposed to be living in light of that is really what Peter's going to walk through in this passage as he talks to these people. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. We'll pray and then we will uh, dive into this text. Therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for the will of God. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry, they are surprised that you don't join in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel is also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we come to this passage on this Sunday. God, I'm grateful that we are shaped by your word. God, there's always texts when we walk through your word that my human desire, that our human desire wants to skip. But God, I'm grateful that we don't because we see a picture of who you are, God, to understand how magnificent your grace is, how magnificent your mercy is, how magnificent your love is. We need texts like this that remind us, God, of how sinful our hearts are. So I pray, Father, that you would use this passage within us this morning. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Convict us where we need conviction. And help us to grow in your gospel today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's reread verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. So the passage starts off with the therefore, and when we see a therefore, we stop and we see what it's. Therefore. Good job. Look at us growing. Peter wrote this book to these elect exiles that have been dispersed across Asia Minor, all sorts of different people, several different churches, and Peter understands what these churches, what these Christians are going through. There's social persecution when he's writing this, but he knows a more intense persecution is about to come around the corner. And so he's addressing them on how to live in the midst of all of these things that are going on. And so he says, you live a life centered on this living hope that Jesus died in my place, but he didn't stay dead, that he rose from the grave and that he ascended into heaven where he's sitting at the right hand of the throne right now, interceding for you and I on our behalf. That's why when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And so in doing so, though he saves those who believe in him, he saves us from our sin, from death, so our lives, even when we're being persecuted, look different than other people's lives. That we live with the end in mind. So what does this look like? Peter tells us it means we're rooted on the word. Because everything else is going to fade away, but the word of God is forever. It means that we live life centered on Christ, the cornerstone, because he has taken a bunch of nobodies and made us somebodies. 1 Peter two, nine through ten says, For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but you have received mercy. We're called to live for Christ in the world, not of the world. First Peter two Twelve, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers they will observe your good works and glorify God on the day that he visits this is what Peter's been telling these Christians these churches everything that we do is centered and rooted on the gospel of Jesus on the good news of Jesus so that your suffering your persecution that you're going uh, through is not beyond Christ He hasn't forgotten about you. He sees you. You're not overlooked. He he hears your pleas. He hears your prayers. He is powerful enough to stop them. And He loves you enough to have your best interest in mind. So then suffering should not be seen by believers as a hindrance from God, but as something sent from God to cause us to lean into Him more. We believe that Christ has come to actually save people. And this means that He comes proclaiming victory. He comes saving sinners from their sin and redeeming us. And he does so not because we have it all together and he wants us to feel good about ourselves. He does it because God is most glorified when he saves sinners like you and I. And so because of all of that, Peter says, therefore, all of that leads up to this, therefore, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same Understanding, Or maybe your translation says purpose, attitude, or intention. What is Peter talking about here? Well, in chapter 3, verse 18, the first half, he says this, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. These Christians, these churches that he is writing to are being persecuted, and there is much suffering that is happening to them. And Peter's warning them, telling them, telling us, don't forget what Jesus did for you. That Christ suffered once for all. See, sometimes people will say, why do bad things happen to good people? And if we're believers, our response is, it only happened once. That Jesus, the perfectly righteous one, died for you and I, the perfectly unrighteous ones that we might be brought to God by Jesus. So here in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Peter is telling us that Christ suffered in the flesh. We, we talked about this at men's breakfast. Sometimes in the Bible the word flesh is used to describe worldliness like that we're currently living in. So uh, it hopes that we'll leave this flesh means something like leave behind worldliness, leave behind sin. But, but that's not what Peter's doing here with flesh. He's, he's using flesh to talk about our physical lives, our physical bodies, our, our flesh. Some of the earliest heresies that crept into the church was this, were, were these ideas that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. And so what we need to do is find some way to free our souls, to free our spirits from the physical bounds, because once we can do that, our souls are free, the, the, like the body is like a prison that we're being held in. That may sound odd to you, but that is the, the ideology that is being propagated by the world. We can see this in some of the LGBTQ plus language. My insides don't match my outsides, so I'm going to change my outsides to match what I feel on the inside. That's not what Peter's saying. Peter's saying, Christ suffered in the flesh. Christ was resurrected in the in the flesh meaning we need to think holistically about ourselves we are not simply souls god has given us bodies as well adam and eve we're not spirits floating around in the garden of eden jesus christ resurrected had a body a physical body thomas touch, one, touches the holes in his hands after uh, the resurrection jesus eats food I got to think about it. After Jesus' resurrection, we have a short like glimpse of his life, and multiple times we see Jesus eating. I don't know if you've seen Casper, but ghosts can't eat. Why does Peter make this point? Because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. He has ceased from sin. We are still in the flesh but our desires change, is what Peter's saying. Paul, in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 11, says it like this, For we have been unified with him in the likeness of his death. We will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the dead death he died, he died uh, to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. What Paul is saying is death brought freedom from sin Therefore, believers now consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. What Peter is saying is because Jesus was sacrificed, we are free from the bounds of sin. If we're believers in Jesus Christ. Let let me put this the opposite way. challenge you this week to look around. Those who most frustrate you, If, if they're unbelievers, please be. Think about this reality. Those unbelievers are absolutely enslaved to sin and they have no idea. They cannot do anything but be controlled by their sinful desires. It rules every aspect of their life. Selfishness, pride, arrogance, all for themselves. Every decision is what runs the unbeliever. There's nothing else that rules them. And we used to be that way if we're believers in Jesus. This is what the gospel frees us from. The control, the grasp of sin. Jesus died to purchase our freedom from sin. And so the moment we believe in Jesus Christ, we are justified. It's like a a, a judge hits the hammer down and he says, not guilty. Justified, Boom, at that moment, and then the rest of our lives, we are being sanctified, which means we're slowly growing into that justification that God has given us. So justification, we are made holy. In sanctification, we are being made holy through the rest of our lives. So all of the hardships, all of the frustration, everything that brings us to our breaking point in life is meant to grow us in the Lord. If we're unbelievers, it's meant to grow you to see that your need is the gospel. And if we're believers, it's meant to grow you to see that your need is still the gospel. So maybe you think the devil is just trying to break me. Brothers and sisters, the devil's on a leash. He can do nothing without God's permission. Now, he's dangerous. He's a lying lion looking to devour. But all of those things that are from the devil, he has to get permission from God to do. What Peter is telling these, these these Christians, and really is for us, I think, is that suffering that Peter talks so much about means that Christianity is not meant to be comfortable. The goal of Christianity is not to live a comfortable life. The goal of Christianity is holiness. That's what the gospel does. The gospel does not make life easier. It gives you the savior for life. It changes the desires of our hearts. So instead of glorifying ourselves in what we do, instead of me wanting to glorify Ben, I want to glorify Jesus now. Who cares what happens to me? My job in this kingdom is is not uh, my job in this kingdom is not to be somebody or to be known. My job is to preach the gospel in rural West Texas to people who may or may not want to hear it. Hey, buddy. To pastor Ira Baptist Church, to minister to the community. But brothers and sisters, you and I in Ira, as great as we think Ira is, will not be written down in the history books. We will die and largely be forgotten. May the gospel that we proclaim and live to not be. Because the reality is, is God has called you to careers. God has called you to your roles. God has called you to your families to do the same thing. To proclaim the gospel for your relatives, for your co-workers, for the sphere of influence that God has given you in your life to plug in and share the gospel there. To be active members of a local church. As flawed, as imperfect as we are, we do so together. Ministering to your community Ministering to your sphere of influence Not longing for human desires But for the will of God So what is the will of God? It's not something hidden That God is trying to uh, Hopefully Maybe you'll guess right It's not like the old game show There's three doors Pick a door And then you can swap if you want to And if you get the wrong door God's upset at you He's not trying to trick you Into making the The, the will of God Is to obey God's word That That simple And so there's a few things we need to understand when we think about the will of God. God will never will you to sin. So if you have two choices in front of you, and one is a sinful choice, and the other one is not a sinful choice, the will of God is for you to not choose the sinful one, to choose the one that is sinless. And when we do choose the sinful one, it doesn't thwart God's plans. God will use those things for his glory but that is not the will of God for us his word is clear and it's authoritative even now 2,000 years ago these things were pinned down and it still is relevant and applicable and authoritative for you and I God's word is eternal so obey God's word that's God's will and if you're faced with two choices but neither of them are sinful uh, and you don't know which one to do pick one and trust the Lord pray about it ask some friends then do it. Verse 3. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living and they slander you so Peter says there's there's already been enough time right time uh, for the time that the past suffices spent doing what the Gentiles do maybe your translation says godless or or pagan choose to do but the way Paul's using Gentile here it just means an unbeliever a, a fleshly uh, live like an, an unbeliever living right so verse one and two we see how we live in the flesh for God's will the flesh is not a bad thing. And God's will is not some mysterious choice that you have to just guess and hopefully you choose the right way and if you're wrong, you lose the end. It's obedience to God's word. And so now Peter is showing us that to live in the flesh means to not do certain things and he's going to list out these, these lives that the Gentiles have been living. We no longer live for human desires but for the will of God. So, But before our salvation, the only thing we had to live for was human desires. For unbelievers who have no gospel, the only thing they have to live for is human desires. Some of you have a testimony or a story of how you chased every sinful thing you possibly could have done before the Lord got a hold of you. You tried to find purpose and you tried to find meaning in everything. Praise God he saved you from that endless searching and meaning. But Peter here specifically lists out how some of these Gentiles, these un-Christians were, were living the things that they were chasing after. Peter uses the phrase unrestrained behavior or sensual living in in maybe in your text or uh, lasciviousness or that we walked in or debauchery or licentious living or immorality depending on your translation. It gets translated different ways. We can add all those things together and kind of have this idea of what Peter is saying. The phrase is all encompassing. Everything else that he lists boils down to this phrase right here, this unrestrained behavior. It's living without any regard for moral restraints. It's, I do what I want, when I want, how I want, however much I want to do. That's the heart cry of an unbeliever, is it not? Yet, deep within the soul, deep within the heart, we all know that there is something wrong. Something deep that we just cannot fulfill. You can see this in, in modern, uh, like, psychologists or modern uh, counselors and how they approach things. Where the, the way that we counsel uh, people who come to them is through behavior modification. All right, so if you're doing something destructive, then what we need to do is find some way for you to do something that's not destructive. To modify that behavior. But the problem is you can modify behavior without heart change. And doing that is simply putting a band-aid on someone with cancer, hoping that they'll get better. Now this goes on even, even in Christian circles. See, I think it's, it's interesting that in uh, verse 3, when he's talking about these things, he, he, in the CSB it calls it unrestrained behavior, because there's a whole movement amongst Christians that says our worship should be unrestrained. I don't know if Peter would agree with that. Every time God intervenes in creation, when he creates the world, it's chaos, and then God creates order. And then God tells Adam and Eve, have dominion over the land. Subdue the land. Spread this order out. It's not unhindered. right? It's not just free to do whatever you want. God has given us these ordered restraints. God tells us how we worship him. We'll we'll finish 1 Peter in a month or two or three or four, however long it takes us. Then we'll go on to Haggai, which is an Old Testament prophet. And after Haggai, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is Paul writing to this church that had a lot of chaotic worship. And what Paul is saying is get some order in place. The Holy Spirit is not a spirit of chaos. That's the cry of the lost souls. I do what I want, when I want, however I want. And then when something goes wrong within that, you have nothing internally to fix because your only desire is human cravings. And so you have to either try to change your cravings through behavior modification or you try to do whatever it is to get around or to fill that void or to fill that hole, which is what we see Peter doing when he lists out all of these things. Evil desires is a human, sinful human desires that influence a strong influence over people drunkenness you you will not find a passage in scripture that says do not drink alcohol instead you will find passages warning about drunkenness and causing others to sin there's a clear difference between being uh, between controlled drinking a glass of wine every now and then a beer every now and then and uncontrolled drinking having to have a glass of wine having to have a beer getting drunk every time you drink if someone's a recovering alcoholic around you and, and, and they're refraining from drinking for other reasons, you as a believer should refrain from drinking around them. Our covenant states this well, and we, we read it, we will not be controlled by intoxicating drinks and we will not cause one another to stumble into sin. Uh, you could throw probably drugs into here as well. right? Getting drunk, doing drugs, loosening the restraints is the idea that Paul is pointing at within this culture. Orgies, this is referring to wild parties and feasts, these banquets that would take place with the intention of giving in to wild immorality at the end of the night. Carousing is drunken parties, drunken bouts, lawless idolatry is, is idol worship. Remember, these are persecuted Christians. These are believers who have the social persecution already on them and Paul is like remember don't give in to those things because when persecution comes it's going to reveal what you truly believe in and what you don't believe in at salvation we change We are justified at that moment, and in that moment, our desires change. And so you instantly begin living less and less like the pagan, like the unchristians do, and more and more like a holy uh, God would have you live. And what ends up happening is those people that you used to party with recognize that something has changed within you. And so they use the phrase like, man, you used to be cool, but now you're weird. Now you're just a goody-goody-two-shoes. Ah, they got us. Don't you just love the phrase uh, when when people are like, well, now you're just judging me. You'll hear that one. You're just judging me. Don't you love that that phrase, don't judge me, is a judgment on itself? You can't say, do not judge me without judging somebody else. Or they'll say uh, things like, we should be tolerant of everybody, but to say we should be tolerant of everybody means that you're being intolerant of someone. So what we see Peter doing is he's saying, you've come from this this culture of all of these things that are taking place, all of this stuff that is happening around you, and if the the Lord saves you and you repent and you turn from those things, all of a sudden the world is not really going to like you anymore, and what will they do? They'll slander you. They'll make fun of you. They'll lie about you. Which is what Peter's been saying this whole time. If you suffer for doing what is good, rejoice because Christ also suffered. If you are made fun of for doing what is right, you have good company in Jesus. Verse 5. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. So Peter says, for this reason, the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. This text is tied to the text that we've had just before, beforehand, and it has caused a lot of differences within Christianity. However, whatever interpretation you take with this, the application really doesn't change. All right. So, so I preached on this passage last week. You can go back and listen to it if you want. But First Peter three nineteen, we saw that Jesus, in, in our, my understanding, went and made a victory proclamation over the spirits. Again, this has been debated. I'm not. The application doesn't change. But here we have Jesus preaching the gospel. They're two different words. It, it's a different word. It means preach the gospel. We've translated it well. So, so look as I read this first. Like, listen real closely as I read this passage again. The gospel was preached to those who are dead. There was a concern in the early church. They genuinely and truly believed Jesus was going to come back very quickly. And so you had these believers at this point who had believed in Jesus Christ and then physically they had died. And so there's this concern in the church of, well, what about those believers who have already physically died? What will happen to them? The gospel was also preached to those who are now dead. Not being preached while they are dead, who are now dead. So what Peter is saying is is their judgment that they face in the flesh was that they were killed or or that they have died. They heard the gospel, they repented, they believed in Jesus and then they died for whatever reason. So now, live as Christians because even if you die before Jesus comes back, there's a resurrection. Peter's making all of these points, right? So he's saying... Not that Christ is preaching to people who have already died so that they might have a chance to repent in, in hell. That's not what the Bible teaches. We believe hell is eternal. We believe repenting in the gospel in this life is what Scripture says. What Peter is saying is those who believe before death, before physical death, and he's saying all of these things to culminate in this point, You will be judged. And the reality of our life is we will be judged by multiple groups. And we cannot please all of them. In fact, in reality, you can really only please one. And so what Peter is saying is pick. Which judge are you going to please? Or really, the underlying question is, who do you fear the most? The world, the flesh, the devil, unbelievers, and then some who claim to be believers, will issue judgments against you. They will persecute you. They might even kill you. They will slander you, as Peter says. But Peter's also saying there's something more than this. Matthew 10.28 says this, Do not fear those who can kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who is able to destroy both the soul and body in heaven. (laughs) Some people's kids act like their fathers, and there's nothing we can do about this. there's comfort here in this passage. It may not feel like it, but there's comfort. In the end, Jesus is the ultimate judge. The very one who made himself finite was able to be killed and died the death that you and i deserve the one who clung to the cross willingly he could have come off at any point and he doesn't he stays on the cross the one who bears the wrath of god that's for you and i the sin that you and i have created jesus bears that wrath for us he dies he's resurrected three days later appears to hundreds of people and then he ascends and he is seated at the right hand of god that jesus is the one who's the judge that Jesus is the one who says, if you repent of your sins and you believe in me, you will be saved. That Jesus is the judge. There's comfort there for believers. The idea is not that he's just going to open the book of our life and just flip through all of the pages and just go, ooh, uh, yeah, I'm done with you. Get out of here. The idea is that Jesus already knows our hearts. He's omniscient. He's omniscient. He knows everything about us. He knows more about you and I than we know about ourselves. He knows every hair on our head. I could not tell you how many hairs I have. But Jesus could. He's the one who's the judge. And he's the judge of the living and the dead, is what Peter says. To remind these people, Right there's this genuine fear that if we die before Jesus comes back, we won't be with him. Jesus says, "No, no, no, no. I'm, I'm the judge of the living and the dead. That He suffered in the flesh, so we can suffer too, because He's brought what we need. We live now with, with unChristians." Who are going to slander us in our hearts, our human hearts, when we're slandered by unbelievers, when we're made fun of by unbelievers, when they do something we don't like in our human hearts, our natural desire is to make them enemies of our life and to either push them away or try to destroy them with words, with social media posts, with, uh, I don't know, cannonballs, I don't know, whatever else you try to destroy unbelievers with. But what the gospel is telling us is they're not the enemy. They're enslaved by these sinful desires that they don't even know they're enslaved to. And they're longing for something more. They're longing for peace. They're longing for comfort. They're longing for fulfillment. And the only way that they can ever have that is through the same Jesus who died for you and I can also save them. And so our job with unbelievers is not to view them as the enemy, but to view them as victims that need the gospel of Jesus Christ and to lay down our lives to sacrifice everything within us, everything within our power, so that they too might know Jesus Christ and be saved. Spurgeon says it like this If they're going to go to hell, make them have to trounce over our bodies as we grab and grip and try to drag them into Jesus. And what that means is that we will suffer, that we will get made fun of, that it will hurt your feelings. And we're in good company. Because Christ suffered in the flesh. So you and I are free from the restraints of our sins. To be more godly, to grow in holiness, and to share that gospel with unbelievers who are dying and living for anything and everything but Jesus Christ and have no idea that he is who they need. But it's also a a warning for us. How we live our lives will be judged by Jesus. There's grace there, there's mercy there, there's forgiveness there, but there's judgment that's coming too. God is the final judge. And so what Peter is saying is pick. You will be judged. Pick who you'll be judged by. You can only please one judge, you can please the world or you can please the Lord. One will judge you now, one will judge you later. Pick. For believers, we've said we choose to pick side Jesus. We choose to please the omniscient creator God who loves us and cares for us and gave himself for us, and what that means is that we will be judged now. For unbelievers, it's not that way. And they may not even realize the choice that they've made. Live in the Spirit of God according to God's standards. Do the will of God. Obey God. So if you're a believer, follow after Jesus more. Lean into the Gospel more. Repent of your sins more. God has placed those people who annoy you in your life for your good. Pray for them. And pray for your heart. That maybe through your gospel, the gospel growing in you, Jesus working on you, that you might share the gospel with them and that they might be saved. The best way to get rid of enemies is to convert them into friends. For any unbelievers who are here. This is a hard one. But you will be judged by God Almighty. And none of us are worthy to go to heaven and be with him. None of us are worthy of God forgiving us and giving us mercy and giving us grace. None of us are worthy of that. We don't gather together to proclaim. We've got it figured out. We gather together to say, we are sinners and we need Jesus. That's why I preach behind a cross. So if you're an unbeliever, hear my pleas. Repent and turn to Jesus. He can take your hurt. He can take your pain. He can take your suffering. You will get made fun of in this life, but Jesus is far worth it. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you, God, that we can come to this passage, which is a hard passage. But Jesus, if you're the judge... then we can lean fully and completely on you. We can trust you, God, for grace. We can trust you for mercy. We can trust you for forgiveness. God, we don't have it figured out. We have sins that still reign within our lives, Father. We still choose sin far more often than we should, but we trust you to continue growing us. So God, I pray for believers who are here that you would help us to lean into the gospel of Jesus more. pray for unbelievers who are here, God, that this call, this gospel would be something that you use. God, you save people when your word goes out. When the word of God is breathed out, life happens. We see that all throughout Scripture. And so I pray, Father, for any unbelievers who are here that this morning you might save them. That they would repent of their sins, that they would turn to you, God, and that we as a church would rejoice with them. That we would commit to discipling them, to pointing them to you, Jesus, and they would commit, God, to helping us grow and being discipled as well. God, I pray as we enter into a time of worship through singing, that you would help our hearts to sing your joy, to sing your word to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand.